Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Transplantation as a Treatment Option for Blood Cancers. And we really have a wonderful um, faculty today on today's program, wonderful speakers. And um, I, I do want to acknowledge that today's program is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals and the Dianapoli Fund. I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call. There's over 152 participants on this program today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, France, Iraq, and the United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is a partnership between Be The Match Patient Support Center and Cancer Care, and we are delighted to be partnering with them on this program, and you'll be hearing more from Be The Match later on in the program. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member, Memorial Stone Catering Cancer Center, professor of Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing an overview of transplantation as a treatment option for leukemia and communicating with the healthcare team about practical to manage post-treatment concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thank you, everyone. And what an honor to be part of this great panel. And uh, thanks to Jazz and to Vita uh, Matt for supporting this. Um, I look after chronic myeloid leukemia and myeloproliferative disorders, um, but have uh, worked in leukemia and, and as well in bone marrow transplant directly and indirectly for over 20 years. And, and um, I thought I'd really just open up with some basic principles um, regarding this. You know, one of the most common questions I tackle with my patients is, why a bone marrow transplant? How does it work? You know, different than a heart transplant or kidney transplant where patients are given an organ to replace the old one, which isn't working, there's a lot more to a transplant. Um, and it really is not only um, replacing the diseased organ, which is um, the blood, and we're talking about many different blood cancers today, but it's also in, in, instilling a new immune system, which takes over and helps and a very strong anti-cancer mechanism fight the disease that was present, whether it's lymphoma, myeloma, dysplasia, leukemia, all the diseases. The other question I usually um, have to explain is, you tell me I'm having a bone marrow transplant, but my donor is, isn't having any bone marrow tests or bone marrow samples. How does that, how's that work? Um, we're looking for, the, the, probably the better general term is a stem cell transplant. And stem cells are the cells that reside in the bone marrow. They can be mobilized into the blood and they are the repopulating cells that can do the two things I just spoke about, can replace the damaged organ, which um, generally will be either reduced significantly or ablated, as we say, with uh, conditioning therapy, which is another term to mention, um, and then we'll formulate a new immune system from, uh, from the donor and help keep the cancer from relapsing. So, so those are just a couple of key principles. Um, the treatment, you know, goes in, in, in steps where there's um, disease control, and we'll get to that, there's conditioning therapy, which uh, controls the disease even more, but doesn't completely eradicate the bone marrow. We don't, um, we come close, uh, or depending on the conditioning regimen. And 
and conditioning means getting the bone marrow ready to allow a new bone marrow to grow in the place of the old, um, while not you sort of um, uh, making that impossible by doing too much damage to the bone marrow or harming the patient too much. The, um, the advance in the last few decades have included what's called reduced intensity transplant, where, where very little or sometimes minimal conditioning is given, and it's really the gradual transfer of one marrow over another and the, the over, overtaking of one immune system over the, the other, sort of the donor overtaking the host, as we say. So a lot of, a lot of nuances here. I think we're going to talk more later in, in the series about, uh, or later in the lectures today about donors. Um, you know, a couple of categories include um, unrelated donors, which are, could be strangers who look like us when it comes to our blood via antigens or markers on the blood called uh, human leukocyte antigens or HLA antigens. Um, we, of course, often and primarily look for related donors who we know will be related to us and therefore share blood antigens or HLA antigens. And we even have extended donor sources, including cord blood from the blood of an infant as it's born, which is housed in the umbilical cord, um, is interesting in that it's strong that it can repopulate a bone marrow. It may not be enough volume, but it may need to be um, combined with other cells from another cord um, blood. But it's also, its immune system is a bit underdeveloped, and the complications that come with the new immune system being instilled are, can be managed quite easily, and um, it's a very good source for material. So we're going to talk also in, in a few minutes, um, other speakers, about the immune balance, graft versus host disease versus graft versus leukemia, um, and um, the, the immune suppression that's required, and of course, managing disease relapse. Let me give you a window into bone marrow transplant or, or stem cell transplant for leukemia. In covering the four major types of leukemia, acute and chronic, and lymphoid and myeloid, um, I'll, I'll work backwards um, a bit and talk about um, CML, which um, is chronic myeloid leukemia, is a disease that is probably amongst the most successfully treated with stem cell transplant, but ironically, where we do it in, a, in an increasingly small number of patients because we have very good therapy with tyrosine kinase inhibitors or, or TKIs, which are oral medications, which can control CML and put it into remission in the overwhelming majority of patients. And we even now can put patients into a treatment-free remission, essentially do the equivalent of what we want to do with a transplant, which is cure someone of leukemia by treating them for a length of time and under the right circumstances with the right disease control and with luck. About half the patients um, under those circumstances may not need treatment indefinitely. So CML transplant, uh, I'll, I'll give a quick um, example at the very end, but, but it is uh, decreasingly used. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia has seen an explosion in therapies targeted therapies against some of the kinases and the uh, switches that are thrown on, uh, the immune regulators that, that um, trigger and um, allow CLL to persist or evade chemotherapy, and also CART T-cell therapy, which is engineered T-cells from the donor, from a person, can help uh, via a direct immune uh, targeting effect treat resistant or refractory CLL as well as ALL, which I'll talk about in a minute. So CLL transplantation, you know, using another person's marrow to transplant someone with CLL is still done, but uh, it's select, it only in select cases. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, also has benefited, and this is all good news, benefited from tremendous advances. Um, I'll, I'll mention first CAR T-cell therapy, where, where we can this, we view this as an alternative to transplant. Many people with ALL who might not have had success with their first treatment or, or in whom their disease comes back, we may be able to use CAR T-cell therapy rather than allogeneic stem cell transplant. 
uh, and that means transplant from another person and another, you know, or, or uh, cells outside of uh, the individual. Um, but transplant is still used for patients with higher risk disease in certain circumstances. Um, ALL has also benefited tremendously from immune therapies, antibody therapies that target the um, markers or flags that are on the leukemia cells, cells that um, both target the immune system um, and, and the leukemia cells called BITE or BITE-specific antibody therapies. So we've seen a lot of advances there. Where we still use transplant the most is in the disease called AML or acute myeloid leukemia. The problem here is that AML can be a, a complicated disease where you have multiple different branches of the tree um, or clones of, of cells that can trigger relapse. There are certain patients with AML who have a very narrow um, damage to their marrow where they have a favorable cytogenetics or favorable um, molecular change. One example is uh, um, something called nucleophosmin, NPM1. Someone with that specific genetic abnormality who doesn't have something that is very activating to leukemia cells, something called FLT3, um, may not need stem cell transplant. They may be able to do well with chemotherapy alone. That is um, not the common scenario. It's more common for people that have genetic or molecular changes in leukemia where transplant may help them have a greater chance of staying in remission or curing them. We generally aim for people to be in trans to move towards transplant when they're in their first remission. We have many tools to help us understand who and when to take someone to transplant. Something called minimal residual disease testing. We can look at um, either genetics, something called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, or flow cytometry, where we look at leukemia cells. We're basically looking to see, is there any evidence of leukemia left? And pretty intuitively, depending on how good your treatment is, if the leukemia is not detectable after a certain amount of chemotherapy or it's still detectable, your need for transplant is, it can be um, really clarified. And obviously, if someone's disease is still evident, that may mean relapse risk is quite a bit higher. And MRD-positive patients after chemotherapy generally are recommended to go to transplant. Um, the, um, the other thing to consider is um, the, the health of the patient, how someone's general health is, really can have an impact on how their success with transplant might go. And having a you know, good internal medicine care and, and regular health is checked um, during any leukemia treatment is very important. And then we actually have tools, something, for example, called the EVMT score, European Bromide Transplant Score, which is essentially a, a checklist or a scorecard. How's your health? Um, what kind of complications might you face if you had a bone marrow transplant, which can be very rigorous? Um, that was developed in CML, and it's quite applicable in AML. So those are the big factors we think about for AML. Um, we can use allogeneic transplant as a treatment for uh, AML that has relapsed and gone into a second remission, and that's probably the most pressing reason because AML has gone into remission, relapsed, and now we've been lucky to get it back in remission, has a very high chance to relapse. And if, we, if that window opens, we want to we want to open it wide and jump through it um, carefully, of course. So um, I don't want to go too much over time. I was supposed to mention post-treatment concerns. I think many of us are going to speak about this, but what I would say is when it comes to allogeneic transplant, probably the most, the big three I would say is education. If I had a patient with CML who wasn't doing as well as they, we had hoped with therapy and, and we were thinking about an allogeneic transplant, I think introducing the topic early, getting someone comfortable with the information, I say information is power, and understanding what the path looks like from the patient and the family's perspective um, how much time is involved? What does the care look like? What am I going to go through? What kind of care will I need afterwards? What kind of medications am I going to be on? These are all the questions that someone needs to ask. Support is the most important, the second factor. Where will I live? Where, where, where will I, how often will I be at the hospital? Who will I be with? I'm going to need someone there with me in case I'm not feeling well or if I need some help with my medications or anything. Those are all key factors. And then organization, um, diaries, logs, um, you know, thinking ahead through things, getting things settled, very important because you do have to sort of put life on hold a little bit 
uh, or a lot, depending on the case, uh, during an allogeneic transplant. But when it's done successfully, it's a miracle, honestly. I'm going to stop there and give the table back to my colleagues. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was outstanding and just a wonderful way to start the program. So thank you so much. Um, uh, thank you so much for your presentation. It's excellent. Um, and our, our next speaker um, is Dr. Um, Matthew Butler. Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Butler will be addressing overview of transplantation as a treatment option for lymphoma, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be invited to, uh, to do an event like this and, and to be talking alongside of uh, such great colleagues. So you've heard Dr. Morrow talk about the kind of the, the, uh, the transplants that are done for leukemias. Um, leukemias are cancers of the, the circulating blood cells and, uh, and to uh, really eradicate the disease uh, in most cases when we're talking about a, a transplant, um, you need to get uh, cells from another person because you need to completely replace um, your, your own stem cells because that's where, where, where the disease is arising from. I'm going to talk a little bit about lymphomas where that's not usually the case. Usually there's nothing wrong with your own stem cells, with your own blood, uh, we ju there's just a very, you know, specific disease in, in certain places that we need to eradicate, and we can use your own cells to do that. Um, so the first question is, uh, it, among people uh, who are diagnosed with lymphoma, who needs to get a transplant? And the answer is very few nowadays. Uh, we have such good medicines for most forms of lymphoma um, that we're able to control it very well in many cases, cure it um, with, with medicine treatments alone, chemotherapies and uh, immunotherapies and, and now increasingly targeted drugs. Um, and, uh, and the procedure of going through a transplant is something that uh, many uh, folks with lymphoma are able to skip. Um, uh, uh, depending on which lymphoma we're talking about, uh, there, are, there is a risk after the initial treatment that it may come back. And if that does happen, um, then transplant becomes a useful tool. And it's still a very treatable disease uh, in most cases, even after relapse, but it, it, we have to uh, work a little harder to do it. And so a transplant um, that we use for lymphomas uh, some people actually don't even like using the term transplant. We talk about high-dose therapy with stem cell support. So uh, we take some of your own cells, which are healthy, which are in your bone marrow, although we're able to extract them from your uh, peripheral blood and not have to get them directly out of your bone marrow nowadays. Um, we take some of those healthy cells and put them aside. We, we can store them in a freezer. They stay healthy. Um, and then we're able to give treatment to try to eradicate the sick cells, knowing that it's also going to have uh, an effect on the healthy cells. All chemotherapy does this, but uh, it, it, not all chemotherapies are the same. And so this allows us to give a more intense 
degree of chemotherapy. Um, chemotherapy it can can be a, a difficult thing to go through, but uh, depending on what the treatment is, we, we, we sometimes need to do more to help you recover from it. And, and in the transplant setting, what we have to do is um, replenish your healthy blood cells in your bone marrow after the chemotherapy has done its job because it gets, it's a, a kind of a baby in the bathwater situation. We, we get rid of the disease cells very effectively with these treatments, but also in the process we, we get rid of some innocent bystander cells, and the, um, and the uh, stem cell transplant is the, the part that allows you to get past that and get back to, to having healthy blood. Um, uh, and this is uh, a procedure that's been very well worked out and has very good outcomes nowadays. Um, it does involve some time in the hospital for most people. Uh, while you're waiting for y- your blood to recover, uh, your immune system is down and you're at risk for infections. And, and it takes a, a, we want to watch closely and, and help support people um, to make sure we, they don't have uh, any problems along the way. Um, and uh, and it takes uh, usually about three weeks um, to see the the cell uh, the blood cell numbers come back to normal and and um, you can kind of get get out of the hospital and get back to your life. Nowadays, some people are able to do that at home as well, but wherever you are, you need to be watched closely and and uh, supported through it. Um, I was also going to talk about uh, telemedicine because, it, it, strangely, uh, you know, I tell people um, having a, a blood cancer or going through a transplant, it's a time when you're especially vulnerable to infection. And we've just been living through a, a very strange time in history where everyone's really conscious of infection because of COVID-19. And um, so the kinds of things that... Um, cancer patients and uh, transplant patients have always had to do, which is wear masks and avoid crowds and wash their hands and do a lot of things just to try to make sure they don't get infections, have become really really normal mainstream things to do. Um, one of the things that we've been doing during this time is uh, seeing uh, uh, patients uh, by video visits rather than have them come into a clinic. And that's, of course, for everybody, a, a good thing if you're worried about COVID-19. But if you're, um, say you have lymphoma or, or another blood disease, you're going through a transplant, you're in recovery, your immune system is not 100%, um, this allows you to uh, avoid some of the risks that go along with coming into a clinic or a hospital, being around other sick people. You can't avoid those things uh, all the time. But in in many cases, if it's just checking in on how you're doing, um, maybe getting some blood work, which can be done, you know, elsewhere or done at home. Um, You can see your doctor. You can, um, you know, be, be much in much closer touch, looking out for complications and problems, um, without actually being in a place where you, where you might get sick. And that's that's been a, a useful thing to be able to do for all patients, but especially folks who have uh, who are uh, vulnerable and, uh, and the period of time after a transplant is a vulnerable time. So um, this has actually made uh, life a little bit easier for, for, uh, for some of our patients, and it's a, been a useful tool, one of the few good things to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Um, so there's, this is a complicated process. You learn about it little by little. If, if you need to go down this road, uh, I don't think, I think I've used up the time that I, uh, that I was, uh, allotted. I don't want to uh, eat into Dr. DeFilippe's time. So I will, um, pass it back. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was really outstanding. It's a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our, our next speaker is Dr. Zakaria DePhillip, and Dr. DePhillip is um, Assistant in Medicine, um, Blood and Bone Marrow Transplant Program, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. DePhillip will discuss an overview of transplantation as a treatment option for multiple myeloma, tips, types of transplantation, and graft-versus-host disease. So it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Philip. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and uh, it's a real honor to be on the call today. So um, I have a, a, two topics that have been assigned to talk about in these upcoming uh, uh, six minutes or so um, that kind of cover a few different aspects of transplant care. Uh, so uh, as Dr. Morrow and Dr. Butler uh, have already previously discussed, there are different types of transplants uh, that we recommend to patients with different types of diseases or at different stages of their disease. Um, I think it's important to take, take a step back uh, as we're about to talk about multiple myeloma, as multiple myeloma is uh, the disease uh, for which the, the highest number of transplants are performed every year. Uh, there are two general types of transplants. There, uh, is an autologous stem cell transplant, which is a, a, a procedure in which you will, a patient receives their own cells back as part of their treatment, as compared to an allogeneic transplant or a donor transplant, uh, where patients will re be receiving uh, bone marrow or blood stem cells from a donor, whether that be a family member or someone who is not related to them. In multiple myeloma, almost exclusively, uh, the type of transplant that is used is the autologous stem cell transplant. And as Dr. Butler was nicely explaining in the context of lymphoma treatment, uh, here too, the, the, the approach of the autologous stem cell transplant it is, a, it is that it is a maneuver that allows us to be able to give a higher dose of chemotherapy with the goal of be, being able to get the disease in the deepest and long and most long-lasting remission as possible. Um, many advances have been made in multiple myeloma therapy uh, in recent years uh, with many new therapeutics and the, and the general outcomes and forecasts of this disease have become better and better uh, over time. Um, uh, nonetheless, transplant has still a mainstay role in, in the treatment of multiple myeloma. Uh, likely because this approach of higher-dose chemotherapy does allow patients to get in deeper remissions than they might be able to achieve uh, in other approaches. Uh, and, and often those um, deep remissions are associated with longer-lasting remissions. If we are in 2021 um, in a situation where we still are unsure that we'd be able to truly cure multiple myeloma, the hope is that we want to try to get patients in a place where their disease is essentially dormant. It, we may know that it's there, but it doesn't cause any problems. And, it, and if patients are able to maintain a good quality life uh, and be able to do the things that they want to for long periods of time, that's very, a very important outcome that we all want to try to achieve. 
Um, there are uh, there have been many studies over the years looking at the importance of transplant in multiple myeloma, and it has shown that despite newer therapies that have come out, there always seems to be uh, a benefit in, in, in many, many cases of, of, of transplant being able to uh, help patients stay in remission for longer periods of time. There are a number of unknowns still about uh, transplant, and, and I think one thing that does come up a lot is when should a patient have a transplant as part of their multiple myeloma therapy? Is that something that should be done earlier in their treatment, or is that something being done later in their treatment? And many studies have shown that uh, the transplant is effective in both scenarios, and, and, and as of right now, that is still very much an individualized decision that every patient needs to make uh, with their treating team uh, both their myeloma tr uh, team and or if they have a separate transplant team. I'm now going to move over to the, to the discussion of graft-first-host disease, and uh, it's important to know that graft-first-host disease is something that would only really happen with a donor transplant or an allogeneic transplant because you need to have that difference uh, between the donor cells and the host in order for graft-first-host disease to occur. Um, Graft-first-host disease, it, it, it sounds like a fancy term, but what it essentially refers to is a condition that can happen after the transplant uh, where the patient may experience inflammation or fibrosis, which might mean like scarring, at different times after the transplant. Uh, and it, the, the reason that this may, is, occurs is because of certain differences between the donor cells and the host. So when we do a transplant, we do try to find uh, an allogeneic transplant, that is, where we're finding a donor. We often try to find the best match of, between the donor and the patient, the recipient, as we can. Um, however, even when we find what we would refer to as a, pace, a perfect match, we still know that there are differences between the donor and the host. And... Um, one of the more common complications after the transplant is this entity of graft-first-host disease. Uh, it can affect many different types of organs. It can affect most, probably most commonly the skin. Um, it can also affect the gastrointestinal tract. So sometimes people have uh, diarrhea um, or sometimes people have nausea. Um, and then in some of the later uh, manifestations, it can also very commonly affect the eyes, the mouth, uh, sometimes the muscles or the joints and other types of uh, organs as well. Um, there, sometimes people refer to acute graft-first-host disease or chronic graft-first-host disease. Um, it is true that acute graft-first-host disease often happens more early on after transplant and chronic usually happens later on, uh, but the manifestations of these diseases are, are a little bit different. Uh, the last thing I'd like to note about graft-first-host disease um, uh, is that if, this is, if, if, if a person has this type of transplant and believes that they are developing these symptoms, they should be in contact uh, with their treating team uh, very early on so that the symptoms can be assessed and uh, treatment can be initiated if needed. Uh, the field of transplant in the last 10 years or so has really, really um, uh, benefited from a lot of advances uh, in the treatment of graft-first-host disease, so there are a lot of new medications that have shown to be effective in helping control and, and in some cases also completely clear uh, and cure the uh, symptoms of graft-first-host disease. 
so these are the types of things that you may want to speak to your treating uh, team about um, if any symptoms occur. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it back over uh, to Dr. Mesner for the next part uh, of the workshop. Thank you so much, Dr. DeFell. That was excellent and outstanding presentation and a lot of wonderful information for everybody. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much. And, um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Ruben Mesa. Dr. Mesa is Executive Director, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio's MD Anderson. Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, and MCI Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Mesa will be addressing an overview of transplantation for myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, and follow-up care guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mesa. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here today to be speaking on the topic of transplantation and its consideration for patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms. Have we be part of this discussion as we delve a little bit deeper into the role of stem cell transplantation and how it applies across various hematologic malignancies. As it relates to myeloproliferative neoplasms, there are three main ones which we discuss which include myelofibrosis, essential thrombocythemia, and polycythemia vera. And I'll say that overall, the topic of transplantation is one that we focus almost exclusively on patients with myelofibrosis. Patients with polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia are individuals who we feel that the course of their disease we typically manage with medicines, aspirin, potentially phlebotomy, but that the role of transplantation, given the intensity and the risk associated with, with transplantation, are probably not appropriate uh, overall for those two entities. So let's focus our discussion on myelofibrosis. First, I could say that transplantation clearly can cure myelofibrosis. This initially was a concern as transplantation was being developed as a potential therapeutic option for hematologic neoplasms, there was concern that the scarring in the bone marrow that's present with myelofibrosis might be a barrier to patients in grafting and being able to uh, recover from uh, transplantation for these cells from the donor to find their way to the marrow and to start to work. Fortunately, this proved not to be the case, that although there is scarring, transplantation can safely be, safely be performed. Now, I mentioned that transplantation can cure myelofibrosis. So why don't we use it in all patients? Well, let's back up just a bit to discuss how we manage myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis can affect people in the short term in terms of symptoms, enlargement of the spleen, lower blood counts, or a risk of changing to acute leukemia. Myelofibrosis can be a life-threatening disease, but its course can be quite heterogeneous. There are some individuals that have aggressive disease that can find the disease being life-threatening in just a handful of years, or others that live a much longer period of time. 
When we're coming up with a treatment plan for myelofibrosis, the first thing we do is we be sure we have an accurate diagnosis. We assess the risk that the disease presses to the individual afflicted in terms of how likely is the disease to become life-threatening and over what sort of time frame. But we also consider the burden of the disease. How difficult is it for the patient to have the disease at that time? Are they having symptoms, enlargement of the spleen, or other difficulties? We then come up with a treatment plan. Based on age, based on risk, based on burden of the, the disease, as well as based on the input of the patient, we decide on whether to move toward stem cell transplantation. Overall, we consider it most specifically uh, the younger an individual is, it can be done up until the mid-70s, but individuals in their 40s, 50s, and 60s are uh, more likely to have benefit based on a lower risk of complications of transplantation, as we've heard today, such as graft-versus-host disease. Additionally, we consider the potential donor, but we also really consider that risk of the disease. How likely is the disease going to be life-threatening in five years or less? The answer to that is low. We then consider delaying transplantation as to some future state. For most patients with intermediate or higher risk myelofibrosis, we move to medical therapy, uh, which at this point in time, there's two approved therapies, both ruxolitinib and fidratinib. They can help to improve spleen symptoms and help individuals live longer with the disease. And potentially we'll consider transplantation if individuals progress. Uh, or the risk with their disease changes. Individuals in which we are considering proceeding with transplant in the near future, we typically might still begin them on medical treatment, such as a JAK inhibitor, to improve the spleen, to improve symptoms, and to have them be in better shape before starting uh, with the transplantation. So, it is a very impactful therapy. It can be incredibly helpful for individuals to, uh, to undergo, but the selection is specific and your input is important. Now, in support of really vetting such a complicated therapy, I think it's important for patients with myelofibrosis early on to be able to visit with transplantation programs and sometimes get an opinion of one or sometimes more uh, centers that are involved with transplantation. Telehealth and telemedicine have become a very helpful tool for patients to be able to visit with experts in transplantation and myelofibrosis and to be, become better informed about the disease. I strongly encourage patients to be able to interact with one or multiple physicians to develop an understanding of the disease, to chronicle both what they're feeling, keep track of their lab tests and the results, but also keep track of questions to be able to get answered when you visit with your healthcare team. It's frequent that you may not have these questions be top of mind, and sometimes chronicling them in advance will help with communication with your hematologist as well as with potential transplant physicians 
that you're seeing. So uh, many positive movement in the safety and effectiveness of new therapies for myelofibrosis and the role of transplantation. And with that, I'll hand it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was really outstanding and really just a wonderful presentation and, uh, and just wonderful information also about the, just the great value of telehealth, telemedicine appointments at this time as well. Thank you. And perhaps into the future in, in moderation as well. It sounds like it's, a, it's, it's been useful to many people. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Nandita Kara. And Dr. Kara is consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Associate Professor of Medicine, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kara will be addressing an overview of transplantation for myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, searching for a donor, and the role of clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kara. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the introduction and uh, for the opportunity to be here today. Um, so I'd like to start with myelodysplastic syndromes and the role of transplantation for them. Uh, as some of you may be aware, myelodysplastic syndromes are a group of bone marrow disorders um, where the bone marrow does not produce enough of healthy blood cells. And that is usually due to genetic changes in the stem cells. Um, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, these, these are the cells that help produce the mature cells that circulate in our blood. And so how we treat myelodysplastic syndrome in this day and age is based on a risk scoring system. And this system takes into account um, three main features. One is how many cell lines are affected, whether it's just the red blood cells or white blood cells or platelets or a combination of uh, the three. What is the percentage of bad cells or blasts in the marrow and what are the genetic markers? And based on these features, we can determine the risk category for the myelodysplastic syndrome that the patient has, and these range from very low risk to very high risk. So there are five categories. And when I say risk, what it means is the risk of the myelodysplastic syndrome evolving into a full-blown acute myeloid leukemia or a blood cancer, and also the, the length of survival, which understandably is lower in the high-risk groups than it is in the lower-risk groups. Allogeneic transplant, as um, all of the speakers before me have alluded to, is transplant using someone else as a donor. This is the only potentially curative treatment we have at this time that is available for myelodysplastic syndromes. A few years back, there were some studies that did modeling and showed that while early transplant was detrimental in case of patients who had low-risk disease, it benefited people with higher-risk disease in terms of helping improve their survival. However, despite the benefit, it has been underutilized in our older patients because of multiple challenges, such as um, lots of comorbidities affecting uh, the eligibility for transplantation, uh, patient apprehension, and sometimes insurance coverage issues. So interestingly, in 2010, Medicare came up with a program called Coverage with Evidence Development, where they said that they will cover allogeneic transplant for MDS in Medicare patients as long as those patients were treated on a study that then allowed them to systematically look at the outcomes. The results of this study were published last year and showed that uh, patients who were above 65 years of age did quite comparable to patients who were 55 to 64 years of age and that therefore transplant should be considered as an important treatment modality for them. Another hot off the press study in this area that just was published two weeks back is a prospective study that was conducted by 
Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network that I'll be telling you about at the end of my talk. So in this study, patients with high-risk MDS were assigned to a donor arm and a no-donor arm based on whether they had availability of a matched sibling or a matched unrelated donor. Those who were on the donor arm went to a reduced-intensity conditioning allogeneic transplant within six months of their enrollment, and those who were on the non-donor arm received non-transplant treatment per their doctor's recommendations. The study showed a remarkable improvement in survival at three years for patients who were on the donor arm, as well as improvement in the leukemia-free survival. The study also looked at quality of life using multiple instruments um, that were uh, done at enrollment and multiple time points after enrollment, and basically showed comparable quality of life between the two study arms. So this is being hailed as a practice-changing study, and we hope that it will lead to an improvement in the number of transplants being done for myelodysplastic syndromes. So switching gears now to talk a bit about the searching for a donor, um, Dr. Morrow covered some of these issues um, in his talk. Um, so when we see a patient for a bone marrow transplant consult, if we feel that they are an appropriate candidate to, produce, to move forward with transplant, we start by typing them at five different HLA genes. And these are called HLA-A, B, C, DQB1, and DRB1. And there can be multiple donor options based on the match that is available. The best is a match sibling that would be a match at all those five genes, but that is available in only about less than 30% of the time, especially with our nuclear families these days. Next option we have is looking for a 10 out of 10 donor in the registry. So we have an international transplant registry, and so we try to look for a donor in that registry. And if we have, um, say, only 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 or no donors at all in the registry, our next option is to look at some alternative donor sources like a half match, um, and that half match could be a, a sibling, it could be a parent, or it could be a child, because they do have half the, the uh, genetic makeup that the patient does. Um, the other option would be using a cord blood um, uh, source. So based on where things stand today, I would say there's almost a 90 to 95% chance that we would find a suitable donor for anyone who needs a transplant, though it may not be an optimal match. But there are techniques that we have been able to figure out where even the half-match donors can have comparable outcomes to unrelated donor transplants. So the search usually begins after the patient is seen at the transplant center um, where we work with the National Mayor Donor Program, especially if there are no related donor options available. There is now a program called HLA Today offered by Be The Match National Mayor Donor Program, uh, and I'm not sure if Jackie will be talking about it a little bit more, uh, but there, through this program, initial typing of the patient and their potential family members can even be done by the hematologist-oncologist um, that is seeing the patient for their disease. Who gets to be the donor um, is decided usually by the transplant doctor and the team, and uh, the factors that are considered in making that decision include urgency of transplant, who all is available as potential donors, and clinical factors such as the disease risk and graft-versus-host disease risk. Finally, very briefly, I want to touch on the role of clinical trials in transplant. As in any other area of medicine, we do encourage patients to go on a clinical trial, if available, to enhance our knowledge of, of this whole procedure. 
Clinical trials in transplant can be somewhat challenging because of the small number of patients with a specific diagnosis that are seen at a single center, and the complexity of the procedure, and the risk of late effects. So to address this, the National Institutes of Health have supported the creation of a clinical trials network, which is a collaborative group of transplant centers across the country that do trials in this space to help improve our understanding and practice of transplant. Over the last, uh, I would say, 20 years, uh, they have done greater than 50 large studies that have generated very valuable data about transplant practice. I am part of a group at this network that has been charged with improving the dissemination and implementation of results that emerge from the trials that are done by the network. And so I'm truly thankful to Dr. Messner for the opportunity to present today because it gave me a chance to tell you about this recent practice-changing study in MDS that has solidified the role of transplant for our patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. With that, I'd like to thank you, and I'll be happy to take questions at the end. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kara. That was outstanding, and I'm so happy that you're on this program today. So thank you so much. That was really outstanding. Thank you. Um, and our next um, speaker is Ms. Jackie Foster, and Ms. Foster is Manager, Clinical Trials, Research and Support, Be the Match Patient Support Center, and Be the Match Patient Support Center is our partner organization in today's program. And uh, Ms. Foster will be addressing the Be the Match Patient Support Center's free programs and services, and she will let you know how to get in touch with them. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague and partner on today's program, Ms. Foster. Thank you for that introduction, Carolyn. The Be The Match Patient Support Center is thrilled to partner with Cancer Care to support this workshop. Be The Match is often known for operating the donor registry in the United States. It can take time to find a donor, so be sure to ask your doctor when is the best time to start a search of the registry for you or your loved one. Donor searches are started by a physician, and a preliminary search of the registry for a donor often considered to be a snapshot of the registry at one point of time and what your potential donors might be is free. At Be The Match, we also have the Patient Support Center. This offers free programs and resources for anyone diagnosed with a blood cancer or blood disorder and their loved ones. Our team of certified oncology navigators can help you learn about the donor search process, find transplant centers, cope with uncertainty, access financial grants, learn about clinical trials, and connect with others. Let me tell you a little bit about three of our programs. First, we have our counseling services. With this, you or your loved one can talk with a BMT social worker over the phone for counseling sessions meant to help you cope with the transplant process. You can learn more at bethematch.org forward slash counseling. Our Peer Connect program can match you with a trained volunteer who's had a transplant or been a caregiver. You could request a match based on your diagnosis, age, or other factors. Once you're matched with the volunteer, you can connect by phone or email. You can ask questions and they'll share their experiences and any tips. Request a connection at bethematch.org forward slash peer connect. And third, through our clinical trial search and support program, our clinical trials navigators can answer your questions and help you find potential clinical trials for you. Learn more at ctsearchsupport.org. Again, all of our programs and resources are free. You can call or text us at 
999-679-6743 or email patientinfo at nmdp.org. Thanks for joining this workshop. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Foster. That was really um, outstanding and just such a wonderful resource for everybody on this call today. So um, I should say at the end of today's program, you're going to be getting um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation. It will probably be tomorrow. And in that evaluation, there will be a um, – also, it's an evaluation. We appreciate you filling it out. But in addition, there will be a link to all the different resources we provided during the program today and even some others. So it, although it's an evaluation, we also want to include some other resources for all of you in case you are busy writing down the information that anyone gave you. You'll be able to, we'll be able to send that to you so you'll have it as well. And even some other things that maybe weren't mentioned so you'll have as much as you need. And, and I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, and um, so Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide really uh, oncology social work services to people um, throughout the United States. Um, and those services include um, both we have what we call a hope line where people can call us on the telephone or they can go to our website and post a question. Um, and um, our oncology social workers will assist people with their concerns and questions that they may have or need for resources. Now we also offer practical and financial assistance and we also have a co-payment assistance program that enables us to give larger grants to people who are undergoing um, treatments um, some, you know, that are quite costly and they were able to assist with that as well. We also offer online support uh, groups, and people really like those online support groups because um, they occur, um, they're, they're running 24 hours a day, and there's no specific time that you have to enter the group. Um, there is an oncology social worker moderated for each of these groups, but they tend to moderate the group during business hours. However, all of you have the option to post things on that online support group at any time of the day or night. And sometimes people do use nights and weekends and things like that just because that's when you're able to do, when you're up and wanting to post those, uh, your questions or concerns. Some of you just listen um, and find it helpful as well. Um, we also um, offer what we call case management services. And, and so there are times when you call us, we may not have the resource you need. So then our case management team will work with you virtually to take you, figure out what the resource might be that could help you. It could be a resource in your own community or in your region or nationally as well um, that could help you with your issues of concern. Many people have issues of concern around, let's say, food insecurity, just not get, having adequate food. Just basically that's a big issue for many people or other issues like that. And our, our team will help to connect you virtually with the resource to meet your need and we'll continue working with you until you get the, the need for, the, for what you need help with. That's, that's really important. And we also offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year on different topics. And we also offer a host of different type of publications, many of them similar topics to what we offer in our, these workshops and some different as well. So that gives you a snapshot of some of the services that Cancer Care offers. Now we're going to move on to our Q&A, and I'm going to ask um, that um, our speakers be brought on board for the Q&A, and um, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And we'll probably take mostly online questions just because we want to be sure to get to as many of your questions as possible. So uh, Michelle, Thank you, you could explain ladies how Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. 
If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a general question, and this is for um, Dr. DePhillip. Um, how long will I be in the hospital after receiving a transplant? Does this vary from patient to patient? If you could address this question. Sure. Um, with most uh, types of transplants, whether you're getting an autologous stem cell transplant, so cells from yourself, or the donor transplant, um, for both of those, in many cases, people go into the hospital. There are some uh, centers that have started to do some transplants outpatient, but even those outpatient uh, transplants require a lot of uh, uh, um, visits to the clinic, many on a daily basis. Uh, when people are in the hospital for their transplant, uh, it can the length of the hospitalization is usually, or I tell patients, around two to three weeks, uh, sometimes into the four-week range. Um, the length of the hospitalization depends on uh, how many days. So for every type of transplant, there's usually some type of chemo, that uh, chemotherapy regimen that is given as part of the transplant uh, in the, at the first part. Uh, so sometimes that all that chemo can sometimes be given in like one day, for example, with patients with multiple myeloma. Other regimens, uh, that treatment is stretched out over six or even seven days. So that definitely can uh, add to how long someone might be in the hospital. And then on the other side, uh, that's before the cells go in. On the other side, it really depends on how quickly patients' uh, blood counts come up, uh, and it also depends on if there are any other types of uh, events that may occur, you know, if people are having some symptoms, uh, maybe some nausea or um, some fatigue, whatever it may be, we always want to make sure that patients are feeling well enough or are definitely on the improvement by the time they're leaving the hospital. And as this can vary patient to patient, that can also change the length of the hospitalization. And another question for you, Dr. Dilfop. Um Can blood and bone marrow transplants affect fertility? Is pregnancy an option during blood and bone marrow transplant? Uh, this is a, a very important uh, question, um, and the answer is yes. Um, so we, we, we are definitely concerned uh, that the transplant treatment can affect uh, fertility uh, in our patients. Um, uh, it is very important to discuss uh, fertility options uh, with your provider before you move forward with the transplant treatment. Uh, it could be a situation um, where uh, previous treatments uh, before the transplant may have already had a, a negative effect on someone's fertility. Uh, nonetheless, I think that evaluating that before the, the uh, transplant treatment, if that's something that is uh, of high priority should be should be looked into uh, the negative aspect or um, the effect on fertility likely comes from the chemotherapy, right? So it would it's less likely due to the actual cells uh, that someone might be receiving, but more likely due to the higher doses of chemotherapy and or radiation that they would receive as part of the transplant process. Uh, most centers have f fertility experts uh, that they work closely with. Uh, that they would be able to refer to you to have a more in-depth conversation about what options you would have in that situation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, a question now for Dr. Um, 
Kara, how can I best prepare for my return home after a transplant? Um, do, you, do you recommend a professional cleaner or will household products suffice? Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, as you can imagine, the, because of the immunosuppression after transplantation, we do uh, uh, want our patients to uh, take all sorts of precautions for uh, prevention of infection. So usually a good a deep cleaning of the house, we do suggest that. But in addition to that, just other things like, um, you know, especially in today's day and age, uh, social distancing, even if uh, you have been vaccinated or your loved ones have been vaccinated for COVID, we would still encourage masks and all of that for uh, continued prevention of infection. Um, there are some dietary things that we also recommend, so like avoiding um, salad bars or uncooked raw, uncooked food, things like that. So there's a list of uh, infection prevention things that most transplant centers share with their patients when they are ready to transition back home. Thank you. Um, and another question for you, uh, Dr. Kara. Um, what tips can you suggest to encourage friends and family to register as donors? Uh, can you repeat that? What? Oh, yes. What tips can you suggest to encourage family, friends and family to register as donors? Um, tips are just, you know, basically talking to them about it, raising awareness of that. Um, I often get asked uh, as to if we can um, type, you know, more than just the immediate family members. And unfortunately, uh, we are only allowed to type the the immediate ones. But yes, you can definitely encourage family and friends to go through the, the National Marrow Donor Program website, look at where their next, uh, um, uh, you know, or the closest uh, places where you can where you can get on the registry uh, to improve the donor pool that we have. And this is especially important for patients who belong to uh, racial ethnic minority groups um, to, to be able to then have a, a good donor pool for them. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And um, I, I, just, I just want to thank you so much. I also want to thank the uh, participants who've asked such great questions. And I know there are many more questions in queue, but we did say this would be a one-hour program, and we have gone a little bit over. So I just want to thank you all for being on this call. And I do um, want to comment about just where we go from here. So for those of you who haven't had a chance to ask a question, um, you know, please do um, – you know, um, a couple of things. Those of you who have asked a question, those of you who have a question that you yet to have asked, and those of you who have a question that you'd like to ask, we suggest that you go back to your treating healthcare team and ask, you know, go back to them because they know you the best and take the questions that you've asked and, and the information you've learned and, and ask your healthcare team because they, again, know everything there is to know about you. As I mentioned earlier, however, we will also be sending out to all of you a survey monkey evaluation and we will give you other resources that are credible. We definitely want you to find your information from well-respected resources that, first of all, are up to date, that are in the same month and year as we're talking right now. Um, because, you know, meetings are constantly happening. New information is always coming forth. We want to be sure you're getting credible resources. So, of course, Be The Match uh, uh, is a wonderful resource in terms of getting information, um, and we will be sending you that information. And we'll be sending you a few other organizations as well as resources for you to utilize. Just be aware of that. Um, also, um, as we conclude the program today, um, we really do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. 
in coping with transplantation or any issue related to any type of cancer or blood cancer. We want you to now know that you are part of a large support system, um, starting with your healthcare team, which exists, consists of many different people. We do recommend that um, each of you systematically ask your healthcare team about their availability on evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those seem to be the critical times when people seem to run into problems. So during the business hours, isn't so much of an issue. It's really those, those other times. So please do get that information. Um, that's really important for you to have. And also know that there are many organizations out there. We'll be sending you links to some of those organizations. You'll have them, names and their links, and how to connect with them, phone numbers. And we also, um, and we also, those those are useful for people both in the United States and both internationally as well. And we also will be providing you with um, just information that you can use if that's really important to, for you to have. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.